I had I've really been looking forward to teaching this class uh, today. I enjoyed the first uh, intro. Uh, Tommy picked up, uh, and I was just sitting there, you know, listening. And we got to the end of chapter twenty-three, and I, of course, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting the the opportunity to teach the the continuing oracles of, of Balaam, and and uh, with with horror, I sat there as Tommy not only finished chapter 23, but jumped into chapter 24, if, if you remember. I mean, here, here he was, and with impunity, I mean, just went right ahead into my material for today. So, uh, I just had to say that. Uh, <laughs> think about, think about this story. Think about this, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the oddest stories, perhaps, in the Bible. Why? Why do we have it? Now think about this too. Now, I don't know the answer. But were the Israelites aware of any of this going on? Think about it. This is all happening as they're encamped and somebody's brought up to a mountain looking over on them trying to seek curses against them but God's working for them and turns it into a blessing. My guess is, at the time, they're clueless. They're oblivious to what's going on. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't clearly understand when these actual accounts were penned and compiled time-wise. I know we, we attribute them to Moses, I think probably accurately so, but exactly again, when were they written and shared and became common knowledge? I don't know. What's the point? What's the point of this story in the in the book of Numbers? With that kind of as a, a backdrop, and it's a, God takes care of His people. You know, I think that's one of the, the the great lessons is that we see once again God, whether they know it or not, is is caring for His people. We see the providence of God in the lives of of those who are His. And even when. We don't know the danger. And, you know, that happens a lot of times. We don't know what's around the next curve. Yeah, very good. But God does. Right. And do I, do I, do I ever give him credit for the things I'm, I'm not even aware of? Um, God's first answer is the best option. Because, I mean, Balaam goes back to him several times. And it, even, like, when we see, like, um, you know, God set up one man and one woman, and then He gave Israel a little bit of lenience to have more than one wife. We we saw how that played out. Yeah. So yeah, God's first answer is the one we should go with. Very good. And I think there's, uh, as I alluded to a week ago, I think there's there's obvious uh, uh, looking back to it the promises God has already made to His people, to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob. And, and now God is showing how those promises that He made so many years ago, that He's still honoring those, and He's going to ensure that those promises come true because He's, He's, a, He's one of His Word. Uh, and, and so there's, I think there's clear allusion then, uh, to the blessings that Balaam gives in, in retrospect or in, in looking upon the, the promises that God has made, Mary. And as much as God protects us we still have the free will 
and Israel still falls. Yeah. 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 Lots of good reminders. So with that, uh, chapter chapter twenty three, we we studied on Wednesday the first oracle, the the second oracle or discourse given by Balaam, and we saw we saw at the end of of chapter twenty three that uh, there was going to be one more effort. Uh, no doubt uh, Balak believed in the three's a charm kind of thing uh, and so he was going to seek one more time for Balaam to curse Israel and so uh, he has at the end of chapter 23 he has built the seven altars again he's, he's, he sought Balaam's cursing once again and, and, and we talked about and we read uh, down through verse 9 how the third oracle was given by Balaam, and let's just let's just look at that again. We talked too, and I thought I really appreciated what Tommy shared in looking at other scripture in the Bible about what's said about Balaam. If you have any question about his integrity, his motives, uh, as we read the account in Numbers, I think it becomes clear when other Bible writers refer back to him. And make it clear that he was intending to curse Israel. He wanted that financial gain, but God was working to ensure that didn't happen. And especially then here in chapter 24 in the third oracle, it would seem that Balaam was not going to seek God's blessing or word. He was going to go ahead and pronounce curse. God uh through his spirit came up on Balaam and in chapter 24 and verse 3 he took up his discourse and said the oracle of Balaam the son of Beor and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened the oracle of him who hears the words of God who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered how fair are your tents O Jacob your dwellings O Israel like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox." He shall devour the nations who are his adversaries and shall crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. As we read, as we read especially there in verses 5 through 7, did, did some, did certain images come to mind as we were reading verses 5, 6, and 7? I was thinking like Psalm 1 and yes, yes. And, and all that imagery. Mm hmm. And to me, it also spoke of like the Garden of Eden almost in, in its beauty and, and with God being there with them. Um, also, I found it interesting that uh, he, talks of, he talks of them in verse 8 that God is, is, for, is for his people like the horns of the wild ox. 
Remember what Balak said about Israel as he looked upon them back in chapter 22 and verse 4. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. He made reference to Israel like an ox, and now God is for them like an ox. I mean, the strength, the power that is behind them. And in response to this third blessing, and again, verse 9 Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. That's that's Genesis 12, God's promises to Abraham, language there. Balak, verses 10, his anger burned against Balaam and he struck his hands together. I mean, you could just, you know, he just, enough. And, he, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Again, I, you just read this here and you just think, man, Balaam, he's an upright kind of guy. He's just, he's just only going to do what God says. <laughs> we get a little bit of a picture from other passages in the Bible. Uh, and then he, he concludes this uh, section and says, And now behold, I am going to my people. Okay, so in, in other words, I'm going back to the, to the land uh, near the Euphrates, near the river, was the implication. And I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. So, uh, he's not done. <laughs> Though Balak wants him to be done, uh, he's got more, that God's got more that he wants to say through Balaam. So, thoughts, comments? I just I noticed um, in verse 10, Balak talks, says that Balaam has blessed them three times. And I'm just thinking the use of threes everywhere and like amen and amen and amen kind of, uh, there's, there, I'm thinking there's got to be some significance to being blessed three times yeah. instead of once well, being cursed. But right. Just generally the use of the three. Yeah, yeah, the, the completeness. Yeah. And then, of course, we're going to get the complete completeness with the seven oracles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes? It's also interesting in verse 9, at the end of his blessing, How I mean, you talk about him saying, blessed is everyone who blesses you and curses everyone who curses you. And he was trying to curse them. Yeah. But if he was able to, he would have been cursed. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know. <laughs> really good point. Yeah. All right. Well, and with that, let's look now at what would be uh, perhaps the fourth oracle. Uh, who would read verses 14 to 19? Sarah, please. And now, behold, I'm going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession, Seir its enemies also shall be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and shall destroy the remnant from the city. Okay, so interesting to me at least somewhat how the the language here in in verses uh, fifteen and sixteen is almost a, a word for word from chapter twenty four verses three and four. You know, here you've got someone whose eye is opened. He hears the words of God, uh, sees the vision of the Almighty. He's one who has his eyes uncovered. Uh, you know, this insights insights into uh, into God's will uh, in this matter is at least one one thought in this. Um, verse seventeen says, "I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near." And I think this this fits somewhat, perhaps, with what's said at the end of fourteen that these things that will, that uh, this people will do to your people in the days to come. Uh, ideas or thoughts on on that? I'm, I'm seeing messianic. Mm-hmm. Okay, all over the place. Okay. With that. <laughs> I, I I think that's the natural tendency, uh, and I think that's a correct one too. But I would encourage us to perhaps, as as in many cases in the Bible, to see both a near uh, fulfillment and a more full fulfillment uh, in the Messiah. And so be thinking about both the the more close uh, fulfillment uh, in a a physical to Israel fashion and then thinking about how it will be fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, And of course, he jumps... He jumps in in verse uh, 17 talking about this idea of a star, a scepter coming forth. Now he's already said back in verse 7 that, um, that Israel's king will be higher than Agag and his kingdom will be exalted. So it's already it, there's already been an allusion to a king over Israel, though they have none, uh, and aren't going to have for for you know many many years. Uh, but there was an allusion there, and now there's an allusion, uh, a vague one, I would argue, uh, to this uh, star from Jacob, a scepter rising that would crush the forehead of Moab, tear down the sons of Sheth. Of Sheth Edom would be a possession, and uh, yeah, and one verse nineteen from Jacob shall have dominion and destroy the remnant. From my version reads from and then verse nineteen from the city. Does anybody read differently there? Now that that word city is just a generic uh, Hebrew word ir er, and so it could be. 
like the uh, town of Ur, a, a Moabite town. So it could be it could be referencing an actual place in Moab as well. Uh, have have kings have kings already been promised uh, to Israel? Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, all the way all the way back, uh, promises uh, made to Abraham, Genesis seventeen and verse six. Uh, in Genesis seventeen, when Abram was ninety nine years old, God appeared to him and told him in verse five. No longer will your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. So this is, again, this is nothing new, but a perhaps another repeat of that. God's promised these things. Now he's making this true again in the message through Balaam. And... No doubt, you know, if, if these things can probably be seen as true in David and true in Jesus. I mean, is it, is it any wonder that we have so much star language uh, in references to Jesus, uh, both in, in the accounts of his birth, but then also later, like in the book of Revelation, multiple references to Jesus as the, in, in one case, the bright and morning star. There's a Second Samuel eight. Now, after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines. Da, 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 da. He defeated Moab. Da, 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 da. And so, this is one of those. That's a great reference because I think it, it shows that near fulfillment. That that you know. Okay, here's this message from Balaam. You wanted Balak wanted them cursed. God says, "No, I'm going to make them. I'm going to make them a kingdom that's going to rise in power. I'm going to be with them like a like an ox, like a lion, and they're going to subdue the peoples around them." And and we see that fulfilled in David, the the warrior, and then he hands the kingdom over to his son Solomon, who is a king, you know, uh, a peace has a peaceful kingdom. And yeah, <coughs> So I would argue maybe this is a little, you know, this is a little, in some ways, a little bit vague about this this uh, coming uh, king. There's there's no king exactly mentioned here by name, even though we have this coming king in the days to come, verse 17, who would crush through the forehead of Moab, tear down all the sons of Sheth, also make Edom a possession along with Seir uh, as well. And so again, showing Israel through through some unnamed king to be victorious over, over their uh, the surrounding nations. And then that's going to continue as we move forward. Thoughts before we do. So in verse 20... We've got what could be we, this remaining section are these final three words that Balaam is going to have. Oracle number five is looking at Amalek, and he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, "Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction." And we just had reference to Israel's king will be greater than Agag, king of the. 
Amalekites that we read about. First Samuel 15, Saul comes back from uh, fighting against them. He was to utterly destroy them. Didn't do so. Uh, and then we see in 1 Samuel 30 that David... David fights against them. Uh, the Amalekites uh, came against Ziklag where, where some of the Israelites were and, and David went and fought against them. And then an interesting passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. In 1 Chronicles chapter 4, we read what might be um, talking about the end of the Amalekites. 1 Chronicles chapter... Uh, did I get that right? 1 Chronicles 4... Yeah. Look in verse 41. First Chronicles 4.41 And these recorded by name came in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and attacked their tents and the Munites who were there and destroyed them utterly to this day and lived in their place because there was pasture there for their flocks. And from them, from the sons of Simeon, 500 men went to Mount Seir with Pelatiah, Neriah, Rephaiah, Uziel, the sons of Ishi as their leaders, and they destroyed the remnant of the Amalekites who escaped and have lived there to this day. So, uh, are the Amalekites uh, going to to be brought down? They're going to be destroyed? The Bible talks about that uh, in other places. Verse 21 is the oracle against the Kenites. It says, And he looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring, and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain shall be consumed. How long shall Asher keep you captive? (sighs) It all gets a little fuzzy here for me. Um... Kenites. Can you think of any anything we know about the Kenites? What I know is Heber, Jael's husband. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. I think Moses' father in law was a Kenite uh, as well, uh, referred to. And and they become they become friendly with Israel, and yet they are being pronounced as 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 a coming destruction upon them. Um, and there's a reference then here in verse twenty two that Asher is going to keep them captive. Now again uh, a. Maybe a first thought on Asher might like make you think of who? Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is in the descendant. It is uh, in the descendant of uh, in, in the line from Abraham. Um, in Genesis ten, there's there is talk. Uh, of both Asher and Eber. Uh, if you pick up reading in Genesis 10, um, like in verse 21, and also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam, 
and Asher. And it goes ahead in verse 25, two sons were born to Eber. So we've got these, these names mentioned. Some Bibles will go ahead and, and make reference that Asher is actually referring to the Assyrians. But the argument could be made if you've got the Assyrians coming in to, to destroy these people in the, in the vicinity of Israel, what's going to keep Israel from being uh, affected at the same time? And I think it's, it's perhaps more likely that the reference to Asher here is a small tribe in northern Sinai. Uh, you, can, you can look these up later, but Genesis 25 uh, verses 3 and 18 uh, make, make reference uh, to Asher and to this vicinity. It's spoken again in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 9. But what we see, at least in this oracle, number six, is that here's another region around Israel that's going to be, that's going to be, uh, conquered. And it leads in then to the final oracle in verse 23. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim, and they shall afflict Asher, and shall afflict Eber, so they also shall come, or so he also shall come to destruction. And so you've got you've got um, <clears throat> these these ships are going to come, and peoples are going to come and and conquer people from this area. And I think in verse twenty. For at the end, there's a reference, though, that this one also will come to destruction. Now, what what ships, what coastland people uh, were influential and powerful in this region? Can you think with me? Uh, The Phoenicians who became the Philistines and who David then fought against and and overpowered as well. So... So we see these promises of, of these enemies, these surrounding nations of Israel uh, being conquered and subdued. And yet, while we see that as a promise and we see that happening, we also see them rising back up to power, do we not? And becoming enemies again. But why do they, what, what enables them to rise to power usually? It's the sinfulness of Israel that God then uses these enemies again against them and there's this back and forth kind of nature. Uh, so the way I see these oracles, especially after the blessing of, of Israel, we then see these discourses about the, the people surrounding Israel. And not only is God going to bless Israel, he's going to subdue the nations around them because, because God is for them. That's the way, that's the way I look at the remainder, uh, of uh, these oracles four through seven. Thoughts, comments, questions. Verse twenty-five says, "Then Balaam arose, departed, returned to his place, and Balak also went his way." Now we we know we know that's not totally true. At least, if he did go, he came back. Because in Genesis, or Genesis, in Numbers 31 and verse 8, 
when, when God sends the people against Midian, we read in Genesis, I keep saying that, in Numbers 31 and verse 8, they killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slain. Those are mentioned. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. In verse, verse, uh, in verse 14, we see that in this conquering of Midian, Moses was angry because they had brought back captives. And Moses said in verse 15, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these... This is Numbers 31.16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So that's kind of a backdrop to what we're going to read in chapter 25. We've got God doing all these things. Think about this. When Israel was at Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain... Uh, did they know? Did they know what God was telling Moses as they were waiting for him to come back down? Didn't know. Uh, did Israel know what was going on here uh, with Balaam and Balak? Seems like no. Uh, and yet, as Moses is up on the mountain with God, what are the children of Israel doing down below? <laughs> they're they're giving themselves to the gods uh, of the nations. They're sacrif- They're making idols and worshiping them. Involved in and probably involved in immorality there. And while God is working for them with Balaam and Balak, then we see them turning in chapter 25 to the gods of the daughters of Moab and the Midianites. So, uh, let's, let's read, let's just read this whole section, these 18 verses. Uh, uh, let's see. Tyler, would you read this for us, please? Uh, Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in Acacia, in Acacia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. An Israelite man came bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman, through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore declare, I grant him my covenant of peace. It will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood for him and his descendants, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the slain Israelite man who was struck dead with a Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite ancestral house. The name of the slain Midianite woman was Cosby, the daughter of Zerah, a tribal head of an ancestral house of Midian. 
The Lord told Moses, Attack the Midianites and strike them dead, for they attacked you with the treachery that they used against you in the pure incident. They did the same in the case involving their sister Cosby, daughter of the Midianite leader who was killed the day the plague came at Peor. Alright. What's our connection to Peor to this point? Excuse me? Yeah, yeah. That's Is that not where they are? There's a reference to where they are as he seeks to, as Balak seeks for Balaam to curse him the third time. Don't they go to this uh, place, uh, Peor? Uh, chapter 23 and verse 28, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor. So... Where is this location that, that's being talked about in chapter 25? It seems to be just, a, you know, it's where this all is taking place. Right near where Israel is encamped there in the plains of Moab. And, and thus, we have them, we have them in chapter 25 and verse 1, playing the harlot with the daughters of Moab because they were invited to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Is it just a, a, a happenstance reference that we see Israel eating with these other people? And how eating seems to be connected then with them being uh, involved with and associated with and given to the things related to their the, this false god worship. Is this a topic that ever comes up in the Bible again? Of course it is. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it in the New Testament. And amazingly enough, on a day like today... It is even something that we take part in. We're going to eat together. Is that just, again, kind of a happenstance kind of thing? Is it, is it, does it have any connection to our union with God and with one another? And so just as they, they ate and partook in the sacrifices to these other gods and bowed down to them and, 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 and involved in immorality with other gods, God has us doing that with each other and with Him in a good kind of way. I don't, I don't always, I believe, think about that enough. If what is the significance of us eating together on the first day of the week? And should it have this unifying uh, influence among us and and just enhance our connection to God. I think so. Just as it did here in a negative way when they did it with others than Yahweh Himself. And so, God's anger burned against Israel. And what does He tell, what does he tell Moses to do? I find this interesting. What does he tell Moses to do? Kill all the leaders in broad daylight. Wow. Hang them. String them up. Yeah. Public execution. Why the leaders? 
They're the ones who are doing it. <laughs> maybe they're the ones that are doing it. They're responsible. Or maybe also they're responsible whether they're doing it or not. And they're not stopping it either. And they're not stopping it. <clears throat> Think about sin and its consequences. Oh, but I'm not the one doing it. But am I responsible for it? Am I taking action to try to stop this? Am I am I concerned about the holiness of God's name among His people? Have you been a good leader in the past so that they wouldn't follow this? Yeah. Path. So yes. I think it's interesting in verse three. It says Israel was yoked yoked himself to Baal. Yeah. Um, it's not just a passing thing. Yeah. yeah that's going the same direction, being led by the same master. Yeah. And if if all the people are, are choosing to do that, the leader's got to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, if they I, don't, they're falling down on the job. There you go. I, that's a good point. And so, God tells Moses to take them, uh, execute them in broad daylight. Uh, so that God's anger would turn away from Israel. But now notice what Moses says in the next verse. Is Are those the words he repeats? Well, not quite. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal Peor. Now I had never seen this before. God said this. Moses said that. Is a, does A equal B in this case as you read it? Are the chiefs and the judges the same? Are the chiefs and the judges the same? I, I, I have to wonder if they might be. But again, he doesn't say, y'all line up over here because yeah. you're done. He tells them, now you go out and you... Despite maybe your, your your lack of execution up to this point, uh, you go find those who've been guilty and you put them to death. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, don't, I don't want to make too much of this, but I think I think I've been blind to some of this before. Let me give you another example. When when God called Abram, what did, what did He tell him regarding the, the the area that He was coming from as He was going to go into a land into that, that God would show him? What did He tell him about? His existing situation. It's just to leave it all behind. Yeah. He was to leave his family and all that behind. Who did he take with him? His wife, his yeah. nephew. His, his nephew dad. took Lot with him. Was that his family? Did he obey God in going to Canaan to, to the land of Canaan by taking Lot, even though he was told to leave his family behind? I don't know. But there, I think we're intended to, to, to evaluate what did God say and what was done. And in this case, what was the result of, of all of this? There was a plague that kills 24,000 people. Now, obviously, there's other things going on than just maybe Moses not doing exactly what God said. But there is a plague associated with this anyway, right? And it might explain also why Phineas gets such praise from God because uh-huh. he's kind of, you know, it seems like Zimri should have been one of the ones hung in broad daylight. Uh-huh. That's not happening. 
and then Phineas does the needful, and, and God is praising him for it. Well, he is really he is really elevated and held up. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, as all of this is going on, I, the unthinkable happens in verse six, um, where where one of the sons of Israel uh, comes in. Uh, and, and and again, as we as we learn, as as Ryan said, Zimri comes in uh, right in the midst of all this, in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation. Verse six: While they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, again, why were they weeping? Uh, maybe because of the pronouncement of death uh, from God to Moses, and this being shared. And there's, there's much weeping, and here comes this Israelite with a Midianite woman. So again, this is the first reference I think we have here to Midian. It says they were playing harlot with the daughters of Moab in verse 1, but here we've got the Midianite woman being called out. And I think this, this connects back to the very beginning where we see Midian and Moab working together to go get Balaam and come and try to pronounce curses. Now we see Midian with Moab here and this uh, obvious sign of immorality that's going to take place brings her right into um, the tent. And we see Phinehas, again as, as Ryan made reference to, the son of Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest, he sees this, gets up, takes his spear, and goes after this man and woman into the tent, pierces them through. Very graphic. Uh, uh, and even though it's not all laid out in black and white, it appears they're they're caught in the act of, of adultery and uh, immorality, and he pierces them both through, and at that point, the plague is checked, though by that time 24,000 have died. And as, as Ryan pointed out, God God uh, raises Phineas uh, and is given what is said in verse 12, uh, given a covenant of peace. you have any thoughts on that? Why would Phineas be given a covenant of peace? And it's gone. Uh, it goes ahead in thirteen. Um, it will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood. Where does peace fit into this equation? How do you bring peace into this discussion? That's what um, Phineas restored between the people and God. Ah, so I yes. mean, it's that. There is now peace again because someone has someone has made the sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you know. relationship was 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 broken, and thus there was there was uh, there was not peace. There was animosity. There was this anger, this wrath of God, and Phineas restored that. Mary and the priesthood in general is the intercessor to provide. Okay. Those sacrifices okay. Very good. Very good. And looking back to verse 6, when Zimri came in, he did it boldly. Mm-hmm. He did. It. He had no shame anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the others may have, you know, 
oh, let's sneak the lady mm-hmm. into the tent, you yeah. know, kind of thing. But no, he like it's broad daylight, and he's just parading her through the midst of this solemn, weepy assembly, and like, eh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Do you see? Now we talked about we talked about messianic earlier. Do you see messianic here? You see, you see Phineas acting in response to sin, as Sarah mentioned, making an atoning sacrifice uh, so that the wrath of God might be stopped and checked and peace might be restored. Similar but different, Jesus comes and rather than sacrificing someone else, the, the, the spear is turned on Himself to become the sacrifice uh, of peace, restoring relationship between God and man. And so I think there's a I think there's an intended clear connection here. In fact, you think about what what Jesus said uh, in one of the temple cleansing uh, statements in John chapter two: "Zeal for your house has consumed me." Jesus said. I mean, do we not see Phineas in that in that statement? And so we then see at the end of this uh, chapter that God tells Moses, be hostile, verse 17, to the Midianites and strike them because they have been hostile to you with their tricks. They've deceived you in the affair of Peor and the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian uh, who was you know, responsible for this. So we're going to see that play out. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I really hoped I would have made more progress so that I, like Tommy, could have forged ahead and gotten into chapter 26. I really wanted, I, I was hoping to be able to cover some of the, uh, the census taking in chapter... But, I will hold off. Rather than forge ahead with the few seconds we have, I'm going to leave that for Ryan uh, on Wednesday. Memory work. <laughs> yes. Um, I may be mistaken about this or confused, but um, the Midianites, you know, in Genesis when Joseph was sold, yeah. they're called the Ishmaelites, but also the Midianites or maybe specifically a Midianite. Um, Jethro is a Midianite, but he's also called a Kenite. Yeah. So I think Tommy said at one point something about the Midianites maybe being a little more of an overarching or... I'm still confused. I think that. they're a nomadic people. Okay. And so I think they, they, they both had a territory on the east side of the Red Sea where Moses went to the land of Midian when he fled Egypt. And then went to the, saw the burning bush there, but I think there were bands of them that happened to travel around. That they were they were traveling. Well, they were sold. They were Joseph was sold into the hand of the Midianites as they were traveling. But it refers to them as also Ishmaelites. Now that I don't understand. So yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, it's it's interesting to me that he's talking about Moab, but then more specifically he talks about this Midianite. So whether they're just close by, yeah, also right, and, and and they seem to have, as we as we read in chapter thirty one, they had the uh, 
they had the, the, the kings there. These probably these these tribal I don't know, tribal chieftains. Is that what yours said, uh, Tyler, as you talked about uh, verse eighteen of twenty five? Uh, Cosby was the daughter of, of who? A Midianite leader. A Midianite, okay, just a Midianite leader. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, again, we will plan to pick up uh, Ryan covering chapters 26 and, and 27, I think is the plan, for class on Wednesday. So as you read ahead, prepare for both 26 and 27. And uh, we do get to cover Zalofa Hans daughters, which is quite interesting. All right. Thank you.